Hey everyone, thank you so much for supporting our show. I am excited to announce my wife and I have welcomed our beautiful twin girls into the world, and I am blessed to be able to stay home with them over the next few weeks to bond as a family and help my wife heal. In the meantime, we want to go back into the vault and share some of our more popular episodes from the past to help you make better business decisions. If you are enjoying this content, it would honor us greatly if you subscribed to our show and left a five-star review. And now, let's get to the podcast. People don't always want to give you feedback. So if you open with a little bit of vulnerability, the other party is going to realize that you're genuinely interested in hearing the truth. If you do that on a regular cadence, you're going to be more self-aware than most people. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, I.D. Kessner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family and remind you and let you know that we exist for you. So if you have a question you're wrestling with as a leader, you're having to make some tough decisions here in the future, we would love to help. Send us an email to ROIPod. That's ROIPOD at IEPUI.edu. Well, Last week, we started a conversation uh, about your career and what are some of these derailments that, that come into play that, you know, we, we have all the talent, we have everything we think we need to be successful, or we see people that are on our teams who have everything and we're rooting for them, but yet, you know, at some point, they just kind of derail. And so uh, this week, we want to kind of turn... Th- the page a little bit and and get away from just all the the negative and the criticism because that's so easy to get so caught up in as we started talking about last week where you can get so hypercritical of yourself as a leader where all of a sudden you just feel like you're the worst person in the world and what's the point of even trying so on this week's episode we're bringing back Carter Cass is the author of the right and wrong stuff how brilliant careers are made and unmade he's also a professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Carter, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So last week, we started a conversation about these five archetypes that you talked about that a lot of individuals as who have a lot of talent, you know, work their way through their career and just suddenly derail, plateau, you know, get let go. I mean, even you yourself, early on in your book, you talk about your story of how people get derailed. So just as a quick recap, let's go through the five archetypes and, and what are they? The first archetype is the most um, common reason for derailment, Matt. It is people that suffer from an interpersonal issue and have relational troubles and they don't work well with groups and they end up, it ends up hurting their career. That I call, by the way, I created these five archetypes for each one of these to sort of lighten it and not make the topic so severe. So that first person, that interpersonal issue, I call Captain Fantastic. And not surprisingly, it afflicts men more than women. The second derailer is called the solo flyer. This is somebody who's very capable, gets promoted, and then keeps trying to do the work herself. This derailer skews a little female in gender. Happens early in the career when someone starts managing people and they don't know how to teach them to fit, teach them to fish, they try to fish for them. The third derailer is someone that has difficulty adapting to change. 
changing circumstances, changing technologies, a new boss, a new org structure. And this is version 1.0. This often happens mid-career when we get complacent in our jobs. So you gotta stay curious. You gotta keep pushing yourself to learn. The fourth derailer is somebody who is too narrow. They've shot up the organization in a linear fashion. They haven't taken any uh, lateral moves and they end up derailing because they're, they're pigeonholed as being an expert in one particular area and they don't have enough breadth. They have plenty of depth. This person is the one trick pony. The last derailer is the one of the most prevalent ones and it is called the whirling dervish. That derailer is someone who doesn't deliver on their promises because they say yes to too many things and they don't or have good organizational and prioritization skills. So, so Carter, one of the things that comes across in the book is that you really have to be self-aware in order to avoid some of these key pitfalls. And you have this amazing, this astonishing statistic uh, based on research in the book. And you, you tell us that individuals who have an inflated sense of their skill level um, and underestimate their interpersonal issues are more than six times, six times likelier to derail than those who have an accurate understanding of their skills and interpersonal issues. What are the positive things you can recommend that, that people should do in order to have a very clear self-awareness to avoid career pitfalls? Thank you. And that statistic that you cited was the most um, jarring statistic in all the research I did. That if you underestimate the inner, your interpersonal issues or overestimate your skill level, your chances of derailing are six times greater. And that comes right out of Corn Ferry's quantitative research. So it is a really good source. So what do you need to do? You, net, you hit the nail on the head, Idy. It's all about self-awareness. How can I become more self-aware, both to my strengths, so I can foster them even more, and to my areas of vulnerability, so I can reduce the impact they have on my career? So how do you gain that self-awareness? One of them is to start off with acceptance. We're all human. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses, everybody. So just get, try to get comfortable realizing you're not going to be perfect. And when you hear a criticism, turn it into a learning moment. Did you read, you know, Carol Dweck and her research on growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. She wrote a book called Mindset. I see Heidi nodding her head. Um, I interviewed her several times when I was writing the book. And Carol just talks about people with a growth mindset. When something bad happens to them, they really, they're able to reinterpret it um, as a learning moment that's going to make them better versus an indictment of their personality or an indictment of their skills. They're able to just recast the event. So that I start with mindset. Have a mindset. When you get clobbered on something, say, good, I learned something. I'm not going to do that again. Um, secondly, be one of these people that is always seeking feedback. And a lot of times people don't, you know, Matt, you said this earlier. In the last podcast, people don't always want to give you feedback. So a lot of times people are like afraid to. So what I do is I open when I ask for feedback with something that I didn't do well. I'll say, Idy, how do you think the podcast went? I think I was a little bit slow in the opening, but I, and I didn't get momentum right away. What did you see? 
So if you open with a little bit of vulnerability, the other party is going to realize that you're genuinely interested in hearing the truth. And when you get that feedback, if you ask for it on a regular basis, right after something happens, right after a big presentation, right after you turn in the report, ask for feedback. If you do that on a regular cadence, you're going to be more self-aware than most people. So in last week, we were. I loved how we ended the podcast where you were talking about how, you know, when you're coaching people, you bring people in and you want to give, you know, two things to work on, but also two of their strengths because you don't like, like for me personally, I'm an individual. If I'm constantly self-critical and I think so much about the things I need to work on, I get overwhelmed and I potentially just shut down and say, you know, forget it. There's just too much to work on. I'm a no good employee, a no good leader. I just need to stop. And I think for a lot of leaders, that is a common trait where you can get so overwhelmed when you become so critical of everything you do. So talk about, you know, these, these reasons that people who are successful, because last week we talked about the five archetypes of people when they get derailed, but in your book later on to kind of contrast, you also talk about, all right, what are the, the three things people do or characteristic traits that they have that make them uh, very successful and keep them on the rails or keep them on track toward career growth? So this was really a fun part of the book. I, I went to turn the book in and it was only about the wrong stuff. And Hachette Book Group, Hachette said, look, we will publish your book if, and I was like, oh, here comes the if. If you would also look at the right stuff and not just the wrong stuff, because we want the book to be balanced and not just a big downer. And so I laughed, took my, took my feedback and went out there another year and looked and interviewed people and found out by mining and mining hundreds and hundreds of 360s, I found that people that are in the top 10% in their companies in effectiveness, people that are rated at the top, they had consistently three competencies. So here's what they are. The first is they had an ability to bring others along with them. They were good listeners. They were empathetic. They were people wanted to get in their boat. People wanted to work on their projects because they were known as being fair, empathetic, and people that were givers. So Adam Grant wrote a book, Give and Take. And in the book, he talks about givers sometimes don't get ahead right away. Sometimes the takers get ahead right away. But in the end, giver, getters get ahead because people want to work with givers. So the first thing is they're good at enlisting others and they're good at it because they're fair and they're open and they're compassionate. So they're able to enlist others to their cause. Second trait, not surprising. They had tremendous perseverance. So Angela Lee Duckworth wrote a book called Grit. Great book. And he talks about the characteristics of grit and the importance, especially when you're growing up and you're young in having persistence. And these people, when you, I interviewed people that were in the top 10%, they'd say stuff like this. Well, I told them I'd get that spreadsheet by Friday. So I stayed there till 10 PM on Friday. They didn't turn it in Monday morning, you know, Oh, Friday, Monday, who cares? They said Friday. So they stayed till they got the damn thing done. So that sort of persistence is the second trait. 
third is my favorite. It's people that have tremendous learning agility. They are curious and they are very interested in increasing their understanding of themselves, of the world that they live in. And here's an interesting one. They are known to be people that pick up those areas in the project that nobody wants to do. You know, like you're in merchandising, somebody else is in marketing and there's stuff that falls in the cracks between. They're the people that take those things that fall in the cracks and they own them. Nobody asked them to do it, but they're the people that bridge the gaps between functions. Sales, ops, whatever it is, there's always stuff that falls between the cracks. These high potential high performers see those things and they take the initiative to do it. Those are some great uh, strengths that people have. You know, one thing that was interesting in the book, Carter, is you talk about practicing the flip side of your strengths. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on how your strengths in overdrive can actually become weaknesses and how you ensure that that doesn't happen. It, it sounds like it's, a, it's an area of balance that's really important. So what do you mean by practicing the flip side of your strengths? That's really interesting. And the research I found that many times people derail because they have an overused strength that becomes a weakness. So somebody who's analytical tries to analyze everything, even stuff that's not, not can't be analyzed effectively. Somebody who's a good team player is indecisive, can't call the ball. Somebody that's innovative wastes resources in trying to innovate everywhere. Um, you get the point. Your strength is taken too far and it becomes, it's overused. So I found this really simple, interesting tool called Offman's four quadrant analysis, O-F-M-A-N. Offman's four quadrant analysis is a very simple tool to help you. In the first step, you take one of your towering strengths and write it down. So maybe in the case I said, you're super analytical. You can make a pivot table smoke. Second step, you take that towering strength, analytical, and you say, can anything happen where I overapply this? Can I think of any circumstances where I overapply my analytical prowess? And you write it down. Well, sometimes I waste time because I'm trying to analyze everything and I vacillate and I don't make a decision. That's step two. Step three is what is the remedy for step two? So when you overapply it, step three is what is the corrective action you should take? And so, for example, I overanalyze everything. Step three is, you know what I should do in the future? I should decide up front what needs to be analyzed and stick to those things and not go down a rat hole. Step four is, when you don't follow step three, how do you rationalize it? When you don't follow the remedy, what's your justification? Because we loved, humans love to justify bad behavior. And so in this case of Mr. Analysis, maybe it's, um, I'm afraid that if I don't show my analytical skills, people will think I'm a fuzzy poet. So I went through this on one of my derailment areas, and it was hilarious how I justified. In my case, I have an exuberance, a very, I'm a big personality. 
and I looked at the downside of my big personality, and then I looked at how I try to justify it. Well, if I don't have this big personality, people are going to think I'm not committed. That's not true. That's just me justifying behaving the way I like to behave. So that's the four. That's Offman's core, core quadrant analysis. Towering strength. Where is it overapplied? What's the remedy? And when you ignore the remedy, what's your justification? You know, as we start thinking about individuals who maybe aren't necessarily in management yet, but they have eyes on, they love, they want to get in places of leadership within the organization, on their team, you know, and they're maybe just fresh in their career and trying to work, you know, how do you, with some of these traits of success, you know, bringing people with you, perseverance, this ability to learn, how do you um, embrace? embrace these principles as a manager who does not have the quote unquote title or the, you know, blessing from uh, the higher ups yet. How do they bring people with them? I mean, how do you bring people along with you in your journey? How do you persevere, you know, when you may feel like the low person on the totem pole and how do you continue to want to learn, especially if you're fresh out of school and you're kind of burnt out from you know, four years, six years, however long it took you to get to this place of being done with school. Job one, Matt, what I tell the MBAs that are leaving Kellogg, job one is you have to become skilled in an area so that there's demand for your skills. So job one is whatever you choose to do, figure out what the skill set is that you need to build and then write down your current skills write down the skill set you need to build and look for the areas that are the gaps and start chipping away at bridging the gaps. Okay, that's job one. Job one is get to be competent in your job because then nice, then good things can happen. Second, I think you need to align with your key constituencies at work. Figure out who are the important people in your ecosystem at work take them to lunch, go grab coffee. Um, And when you go grab coffee, ask them, how can I help you? Is there anything I can do in my role to help you? What are your key goals for the quarter? Are there any, is there anything I can do to help you achieve your key goals? And that person's going to go, wow, Matt, Matt is a really team player, nice guy. I want to help Matt. So if your ecosystem of constituents, if that ecosystem is strong, all the boats rise with the rising tide. So Carter, earlier on in the podcast, I I mentioned one of the surprising statistics about people being six times likelier to derail. Here's another surprising statistic in the book. You cited a study that showed out of 67 job competencies, developing others was dead last in terms of the skills managers have and motivating others was actually 59th out of 67 skills or job competencies rather. Now, in light of that, I guess I'm wondering, is the onus for addressing the competencies, is that on the individual executive or is it the organization or maybe it's both? Could you, where, where is the responsibility? Heidi, that's another really great statistic you teased out of the book. Uh, it was jaw dropping. The, la- the lowest rated management competency out of 67 competencies from Lominger, that's the group that did it, was developing others. Basically, when I, t- when I teach this stuff, this material at school, I kind of get, I get dramatic and I say, it's a DIY career. It is a DIY life. 
the year, the days of IBM giving you lifetime employment are done. The days you can count on that CPG company to take charge of your development are over. I was, I'm in my mid fifties, they started disappearing right as I was in my thirties, in the eighties and nineties. Because of that, you've got to take control of your own career because you can't assume your boss has your, has your back and you can't assume there's a development plan by your organization. Does that sound jaded? I hope not. I hope it sounds realistic. You've got to take control of your career. What does that mean? It means you've got to find mentors. You've got to find people that you can count on to give you sage advice and help bring you along with them. How do you do that? The best way to, you don't walk up to somebody and say, would you be my mentor? You just say, I really loved your study you wrote on this. Can I ask you about it? And then people love talking about themselves. So they chat with you about it. And then afterwards, you say, hey, this was really useful. Maybe some other time, can we meet? And they'll probably say, sure. You wait a three weeks a month, you ask them out for another cup of coffee, and you start developing a relationship with them. So you reach out to people and you start finding a constituency network of friends and mentors to help you. Next, find the extracurriculars you can do that will be a differentiator for yourself at work. Maybe you're going to run the United Way campaign for your um, department. Maybe you're going to run recruiting with, to Indiana at the Kelly School. You're going to head up recruiting. Whatever it is, find somewhere you can contribute that's outside of the scope of your job that will give you visibility with senior management. Then another thing I think is look for opportunities to take lateral moves to deepen your breadth of understanding of the different departments at your company. So after you've become a good functional expert in your area, when there's an opportunity to take a lateral move, I would consider it. I took two big lateral moves in my career, one in sales, where I was average, and then one in merchandising. And both of those lateral moves helped me gain the skills to become a CEO. You know, as we tie together the three reasons for success and the three keys and characteristics that people have and the five archetypes. You know, I've noticed that you have this uh, mathematical equation, you know, of, of the right stuff where you say job skills plus industry knowledge plus operational ability multiplied by the three distinctive strengths over the derailers. Break that down and how does that become part of having the right stuff? Yes. So it's interesting. Did you notice the multiplier was those three skills we talked about, bringing others along with you, perseverance and curiosity and learning agility. There's a multiplier. Those things are so important. And then you notice the divisor, right? You know, people say to me, are you saying, Carter, that you shouldn't focus on your strengths? The whole strengths movement's baloney. And I say, oh, goodness, no. The strength movement is wonderful. But there's nothing like a big hairy derailleur to sweep you at the knees. So, of course, you want to focus on your strengths, but there we all usually have a debilitating derailleur that if we can neutralize it, it doesn't mean we have to get good in that area. If we can just neutralize it, it'll allow those strengths to shine. So that's why it's divided in that formula you read. It's divided by the derailleurs. 
we have to be aware of our big derailleur so it will allow our strengths to shine and won't take away from them. And even when the, with the other um, equations you have, or the other variables you have, you know, job skills, industry knowledge, and operational ability, define those and then how do those rope into that overall equation? These three core areas that I think are sort of the fundamentals. Job skills. Do you know how to do the mechanics of your job? If you're a marketing manager, do you know how to do pricing? Do you understand how to do segmentation analysis of the market? Do you know how to manage an advertising agency? You know, whatever it is. Can you do the functional skills required of your job? That is job one. Then I have industry knowledge. I, I'm a proponent of, of figuring out what industry you want to play in and staying in that industry so you are really become, uh, you understand the ecosystem, you understand the network of suppliers and buyers and sellers, and you start getting a nose for the industry, a sort of intuitive sense of how that industry operates. So that industry savvy comes from not hopping around too much. So if you love natural food, stay in natural food. If you like SaaS operations software, stick to SaaS. If you like healthcare, digital healthcare, uh, great. If you like e-commerce, direct-to-consumer, great. Whatever it is, try to find the area that you love and then go deep in it. And then the third area is operational ability. That is the art of getting things done. That is setting them up and knocking them down. It's organizational skills. It's prioritization. It's making sure you you manage your network effectively. Like in, in my job, I had on my whiteboard the 12 people who were critical to me being able to do my job well. And I actually had like a CRM program of reaching out and making sure I was staying close to those 12 people. A contact strategy. Fred Merrill up in purchasing to this day. He was a curmudgeon and he was very smart and knew his area. I made sure I went up to his cube and asked for help and asked for his advice on a regular basis because he was so critical for my ability to deliver on my initiatives. So Carter, when you, when you talk about these strengths that you're really going to hone and develop, clearly those go into defining your personal brand. I'm wondering, how do you keep that personal brand relevant over the duration of your career, over time? How do you make sure that you remain um, as relevant as possible in terms of the brand you've built for yourself? Well, that is a million-dollar question. Um, You know, it's interesting. Heidi, there are some times that you need to do a facelift on the old personal brand. It'll run well for a number of years. And then it starts getting frayed. It starts showing it's threadbare. And I hit a wall where I could tell I needed a refresh. And that's when I pivoted into a new career in venture capital. So there are times, and I, you know, so what is the moment where you figure maybe it's time for a pivot? I think the moment is when your learning curve is down and your enthusiasm for your job is down, you realize it's time for you to try something different for yourself. Now, here's the trick, I think. I'd love your opinion on this, Heidi. I think that you've got to make sure there's a good learn to leverage ratio so that as you try something new, 
you're leveraging your existing skill set and you bring along a portion of your existing skill set in the new thing. So it's not completely greenfield. So when I went into venture capital, I'd been doing e-commerce for 14 years. So I looked at deals as a VC that were in the e-commerce space first. So I could leverage my existing skill set. So I think when you're ready for a pivot, there's you've got to make a make it a smart pivot that brings along some of your existing skills. I think that's absolutely accurate. You know, you're going to have competencies. You don't want to abandon those competencies, but stretching yourself and and taking it, taking those competencies into new areas is a very smart way to pivot. So there's a, a interesting saying, Ivy. There's um, Reed Hoffman, the founder of, of uh, LinkedIn. He said um, in in his book, The Startup of You, he said A B Z. Think of A B Z in terms of your brand career management. A is what you're doing now. B is what you're doing going to do next. And Z is your fallback if all hell breaks loose. I add, I would add something to Reed's. I would add A, B, C, Z. A is what you're doing now, the job you have now. B is what you're thinking of doing next. C is out there five years from now that you're going to try to start positioning yourself, learning, setting up your network to do. And then Z is your fallback if all hell breaks loose, like now. So my C 10 years ago is I wanted to be a teacher. And I started trying to set up my life to be able to pivot there. So I got to know a lot of the Kellogg professors. They offered to let me co-teach a couple times. So I started getting to be seen at the school. So I was starting to be able to make the pivot into there. And I I met with the the Dean of Kellogg 12 years before I ended up going into teaching just to start the process. So A, B, C, Z. B is what's next, C is what's out there that you got to start thinking about. So Carter, I just want to make a quick observation, which I hope uh, the listeners of the podcast are in tune with, both in our last segment and in this segment. You really cite a lot of literature, you've read a lot of books, you've you've got a lot of perspective from other people, uh, researchers and other executives. And that's really important because what it means is you're always in learning mode. You're always gathering information that's going to help you internalizing that information and using it. And I think that has just demonstrated a very important point for executives. You need to keep that learning mode and keep stretching and and gathering information that's going to help you throughout your career. So thank you for demonstrating that. No, thank you for that compliment. I, I appreciate it. And I think being in academics has really helped me because there's a lot of professors around me that model that behavior. So that it helps reinforce it for me. Again, Carter Cast, author of The Right and Wrong Stuff, How Brilliant Careers Are Made and Unmade. He's also a professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Carter, thank you so much again for being our guest. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Idy Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.